Good to see you guys here this morning. How about that day outside today? Isn't it awesome? It's been like chilly for the last few days. I was, uh, our boys had a soccer game on Saturday, and we were like, oh man, it's going to be freezing at the soccer game. We had the winter coats out and everything, you know, but today it's nice. You know, it's a nice day out today. We're grateful for that. Uh, um, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has preordained in advance that we should do. So God actually has a plan for us. He created us for a purpose and for a plan, and he has something in store for us. He has something very special that he wants us to accomplish. It's not he wants us to be something, his church, his bride, but he also wants us to do something, to accomplish things. And he already decided a long time ago what it is that he wants us to do. He already preordained that, and he has that written down. You know, it's, it's out there, what he wants of us. And then it moves forward in Ephesians 4. It says that, uh, you know, he gave some of these gifts, uh, apostle, prophet, teacher, shepherd, leader, these are evangelist, shepherd, teacher. That's what it is. And he said, uh, for what purpose? And the purpose was to equip the body for works of service that he's called us to do. So he created us for these works of service. He created his church to do something. And then each of us has a part to play in it. And the leadership, part of the reason we come to church is to learn how we function in the middle of that. What's our job in the middle of that? How do we get to play ball in this whole thing that God has for us? It's really cool that we get to be a part of it, you know? And so uh, obviously the most essential part of that when it comes to church is us learning to engage in a relationship with God. That's of primary importance. So the first and most important thing that we learn to do is we learn the gospel. And we learn what the real gospel is. You know, sometimes the gospel just goes missing in the church. And we might know that if you pray some sinner's prayer that you're supposed to not go to hell, you're supposed to go to heaven, and all of that. And that's awesome. You know, we love the eternal life that God gives us. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is how to step into a relationship with God and live the life with him that he's called us to live. And that is the core of the gospel, how he invites us back into his redemptive work and become a part of his plan. And that is eternal life. That's life that starts now and goes forever, you know, and that's awesome. That's the core thought of us walking into a relationship with God. But beyond that, we need to learn some other things too, if we're going to be effective at becoming uh, the people who do this work that he ordained that we should do. Part of that is we need to understand what we call ecclesiology, which means the church. We have to understand church and how it works, okay? And, and in particular, we need to understand how I work in the church and how each of you work in the church, how we all work in the church and how we work together if we're going to do what it is he's called us to do. And this is when we get to a doctrine of spiritual gifts, okay? And today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is going to be talking about, it's Paul responding to how they're dealing with spiritual gifts. But the reason I'm bringing this up talking about it the way I am at the beginning here before we get into the text is because I want you to know that we are not going to do justice to the spiritual gifts. We're not even going to scratch the surface of spiritual gifts when it comes to what we're dealing with in the next couple of weeks here on Sunday mornings in, in Paul's letter to the, to the church in Corinth because spiritual gifts is a much more pervasive issue uh, a pervasive doctrine all through the scriptures and something that can glean massive, massive effects for the church. This is God giving us what we need in order to accomplish what it is that he's called us to do as we work together. Okay? Now, you need to hear it. 
You need to know what your spiritual gift is, what other spiritual gifts are, and whatever you've experienced of spiritual gifts or learned of spiritual gifts before, I am going to promise you that starting on November 4th, we're going to have a Sunday school class. It's going to meet right here in, in, in this entire section over here. And uh, one of our classes has had to take a hit in order for us to open up that whole place in order to have a spiritual Sunday school class, uh, a spiritual gift Sunday school class, a spiritual Sunday school class. The rest of them aren't spiritual. Um, <laughs> That we're going to have this spiritual gift Sunday school class here, and one of our Sunday schools has had to take a hit so that a bunch of us can be there because this is one of those uh, Sunday school classes. This information is really, really important, and I'm going to promise you that whatever you've learned about spiritual gifts, you're going to learn more in this one because there is some stuff that we're going to learn in the Scripture that's mind-boggling about spiritual gifts. This isn't just about figuring out what I do to help out the church. This is about understanding how God has created the church, how it all works together, and, and deep in the design from creation, from the day that God created mankind, we will learn about spiritual gifts from that day forward and how this stuff works. And it's awesome. When, I mean, honestly, for me personally, there have been a few paradigms in my life that when I've stumbled across them in scripture have just blown my mind. And uh, this is one of them. This is in the top three for sure. That when I stumbled across the, the pervasiveness of God's design in spiritual gifts, it just blew me away just blew me away and has, has uh, massively shaped my understanding of church and my understanding of the spiritual world. And I've never um, talked about this stuff at church before, um, you know, never kind of shared that stuff uh, before. And I'm really excited. The first part of it, uh, I'm going to be teaching in, out of the gifts in Romans, um, in Romans chapter 12. Then we'll also move from there into this passage, Corinthians chapter 12, and go through each of the gifts. And then we'll go into Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll talk about those spiritual gifts, which I believe are, are very different kinds of gifts. All of those passages reveal different kinds of gifts. And if you look in context, they're doing different things. But I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm not giving too much away about that thing, okay? Um, so be a part of that Sunday school class. If you're in another Sunday school class already, um, feel free to take a break and come over and be a part of this and then go back to your Sunday school class. Or if your entire Sunday school class wants to take a break and come and be a part of this Sunday school class for a while and then go back, that's fine too. You guys can discuss that, figure that out. If you haven't been a part of Sunday school class yet, Great opportunity for you to jump in, get to know some people, dig deeper into learning more about, uh, about spiritual gifts. Now, today we are actually going to be in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and we are continuing with our series in Corinthians and understanding what is it that Paul's talking to in the church in Corinth. And to give you a little bit of background, um, you know, this is not, not background about the, the letter, but background about this particular topic in the letter. Um, Basically, you know that when the gospel is centered around, Jesus did everything, right? I mean, Jesus is the one who did absolutely everything for our relationship with God. We get to do almost nothing, but we do get to do one thing. It's by our works that we are saved. <clears throat> we don't get to do that, you know? But what we do get to do is we get to trust Jesus. We get to trust him. You know, that's our participation in the gospel. Is like a child leaning into a parent like a spouse learning to truly trust the other, we have the ability to learn to trust God. And he will take care of us. He will provide for us. He saves us. He, from the ground up, gives us new life. But we have to learn to trust him. That's our participation, is trusting 
God. And there are various ways that we trust God. The initial way that we trust God is by receiving his work of salvation and his death and resurrection as the atonement for our sins and as the new life, the new birth that we can experience. But that's not the end of our trust in God. That's not the end. That's the beginning. That's where we enter into a life of trusting God. That's just the start of our dependence on God and our faith on God. We can't do anything in the Christian world, in the spiritual world, we can't do anything without God being the one who's providing and the one who's leading us. Sorry, Rose. I just have to say that we're really glad you're okay. Rosalie got in an accident, and it's really good to see you sitting there. And, uh, yeah, so it's good to see you. Sorry, I just had to say that. Um, we, you know, we are dependent on God. We're dependent on God to protect us. We're pre- dependent on God to watch over us. We're dependent on God to really Uh, provide for us and help us accomplish what it is that he's called us to do, right? And what's going on here in Corinthians is that we are seeing God's provision. God has provided for them in all sorts of spiritual gifts, ways to help them accomplish what it is that he's asked them to do. Do you remember when uh, when God uh, created mankind, he breathed into their lungs, into Adam's lungs. He was just a mold of clay there. Really good sculpture, you know, but he's just laying there like a really good sculpture. And then God leans over and it says that he breathed the breath of life into him and man became a living being. And one day there was a bunch of people who had experienced Jesus and now he had ascended into heaven and they were gathered in an upper room and they were sitting there praying and all they were were a shell of a church. That's what they were, a shell of a church, a great sculpture, great material to work with. But then God breathed. And when God breathed into the church, it became a living being, you know? And the presence of God came in and filled up that church. And all sorts of craziness started to happen, you know? All sorts of weird stuff started to happen that day. But what really happened was that the ability for the gospel to move forward in people's lives and the ability for the kingdom to actually work now was possible because God was present with them in the person of Jesus Christ in the form of his spirit among them. You know, And that's what was still going on in the church of Corinth. They were experiencing the blessing of God and they were experiencing spiritual gifts and God was still speaking openly. Jesus didn't stop talking once uh, you know, he ascended into heaven. He came back and he was communicating with them. And there was all sorts of ways that, they, that uh, he was communicating. But interestingly enough, what they didn't have is this thing that we call the New Testament. Right? We're actually reading the communication of, of one of the apostles speaking to them. And they didn't have this New Testament. They didn't have it. But God was still communicating to them because God was communicating in really ways that sometimes we consider strange, you know, in the ways that he did on the day of Pentecost where there's people speaking in various languages where someone would come to someone else and say, God's saying that I got to tell you this right now. So here it is and giving a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a prophetic word or whatever. And there's all this stuff all over happening in the church at the time. Okay. And it's just, it's all over the place. And what Paul is realizing is they actually ended up with a problem. And the problem was is that some of these things that were happening were starting to turn into like rock star spiritual gifts, okay? There were some of them that they were like, it was really cool if you had this one, you know? And you were extra special if you had this spiritual gift. And there, some people were kind of flaunting that and everyone kind of wanted that gift, you know? And so Paul takes the next three chapters to completely address this issue around how they deal with spiritual gifts, okay? And uh, we're going to spend four weeks 
between those three chapters, two in this chapter in 12, one in chapter 13, which is one of the most famous chapters of Scripture, and then uh, one in chapter 14, okay? And uh, so we're going to talk about Paul's responses to them regarding how they're handling spiritual, spiritual gifts. We're starting off in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. We're dealing with the first half of the book, and we'll see four things that Paul kind of responds to them with to help tune them up around how they're dealing with spiritual gifts. There's no good reason for us to think that God stopped communicating, you know? It's not like God ever stopped communicating, so we need to hear this for our day and age too. How does God communicate, and how do we deal with it when God does communicate, you know? Um, and, and when he gives us gifts, how do we deal with it? So uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11 for the remainder of our time, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it, please. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one... The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. And these are the work of the one in the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So as we read this, may God add the rich blessing into our life of, of this being received into our hearts and as our, into our minds. You can have a seat and join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your presence with us. You are not just a God of history, and you are not just a God in a faraway land called heaven. You are a God who dwells with your church, and the spiritual gifts are the manifestation of your spirit working in and among us in all sorts of different ways. And we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you're here and you're a part of us. You speak to us through your word. You speak into our hearts. You reveal yourself through creation. You communicate to us. You empower us. And we want to be effective at, at submitting ourselves to you and allowing you to do your best work that you do in your church through us as well. So we ask that you would help us even right now to understand a little bit more of that and how to handle that. In the name of Jesus, amen. So it was a big deal for them because since they didn't have the written word, I mean, this was the way that God was communicating to them, right? That God was actually communicating. If you show up at a Sunday service at Corinth, they could use the Old Testament and talk about the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. 
So what are they going to do? What's the sermon about? How does God communicate? Well, one of the things that he would do is he would actually give this person here a prophetic word, or this person would speak in some other language, and this person would interpret it as what God was saying. Imagine if that's what the whole church service was. You know, that's honestly, this is not, no matter who you are theologically, no matter what you believe, this is just, there's no way to get past the scriptures that that's how church worked in the first century, okay? That's what church was, is they would show up and someone would start talking some weird way or just say, like, this is what God's saying, and then they had to figure out, like, what do you do with that? You know what I mean? Like, this is Sunday morning worship service, and all of a sudden, Nate's standing up telling me that God's telling me to do such and such, you know? Like, what? That's Nate, you know what I mean? Like, how am I going to deal with that? And that's what he's saying, is that we need to figure out how to handle that. You know, and that's what he's saying to the, that's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. And, and he said, so his first point, his first point in response to them is not everything that's spiritual is good. Not everything that's spiritual is of God. Because he wants them to have some kind of safeguards here. Because it wasn't a question as to whether there was spiritual communication going on. It was busting out all over the place. The question was whether they were handling it appropriately. And his first line of reasoning with them was, hey, be careful because not everything that's spiritual is good. Isn't that true? That not everything? You know, sometimes when we refer to someone who's godly, we say, yeah, they're like a really spiritual person. But just because someone's spiritual doesn't mean that they're godly, does it? They're not the same word. Spiritual means that we're very spiritual, that there's spiritual stuff going on. But you can be a witch doctor and be very spiritual. You can be a psychic and be very spiritual. You can be a Buddhist monk and be very spiritual. That doesn't mean that we're correct. It doesn't mean our theology is right. And it, it doesn't necessarily reflect on whether we're good or evil. Spirituality is like saying, that's like saying, you're very physical. Okay, well, okay, well that means that I have flesh and I'm physical. You know, in the same way I'm very spiritual. That means I, I'm attuned with, my, with, with spiritual things. But then there's a whole other level of whether that's good or evil, right? And, and what's going on in this passage is that Paul's saying, there's spiritual stuff all over the place, but you've got to be aware, not everything that's spiritual is good. And here's how he makes his point. He says, you used to worship idols, and you know now that those idols are mute or dumb, that they don't talk, that they're not real, that there's not a real God, but somehow you were led to believe in them. How was it that you were led to believe in them? And the assumption is there was spiritual stuff that happened that validated these idols. You remember a few chapters before when he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols and the pagan worship temples and all of that? What he's saying is, I don't want you to hold company with demons, because what he's saying is, is behind this idol worship, there's actually demonic stuff going on. Okay, and if there's demonic stuff going on, then that means potentially this person could be engaged in idol worship and could see something spiritual take place. And they might be like, wow, since it's spiritual, it's valid. And just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's good or it's valid. And he's saying in the same way, someone comes up in our worship service and starts having a spiritual manifestation and you start seeing all sorts of spiritual stuff happen. Don't just assume that's God. Don't just assume that's the spirit of Jesus, you know, because there's all sorts of spirits. And so then basically what he says, he's saying not everything that shimmers is gold, you know, and then he says, and there's a way to tell the difference between what's of Jesus and what's not of Jesus. All right. And this is what he says. He says, that thing will either say that Jesus is the Lord or it will say that Jesus is accursed. 
which is really interesting because this is the exact same thing that in just a few years will be the determining factor between whether or not these people will be persecuted or not. If they say that Jesus is Lord, they are persecuted. If they say that Jesus is accursed, they don't have to be persecuted. So the, the secular government will learn to ask the exact same question of Christians to decide whether or not they persecute them, whether or not they're legit Christians. Here, he's saying, ask that question of the spiritual beings that are manifesting in your worship space. Because no demon is going to kneel down and say, Jesus is Lord. Why wouldn't a demon do that? Well, this is why. Because if a, if a general goes out to fight an army, and he goes out to fight an army, and we're talking like medieval times, if he's at a tough spot uh, fighting for this one little town, and he decides, I need a good distraction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to give the enemy the king of my of, of my country. We're going to give them the king and let them kill the king. We're going to give them the castle and we're going to give them the treasury and they can have all that so that we can win the battle in this town. Well, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? You'd never give up the king and the castle and the treasury in order to win one little battle over here. And a demon, the whole point of demonic influences of, of, of the spiritual warfare is we're trying to be deceived constantly. The enemy doesn't have power of his own. What he does is try to deceive us to think about the wrong things and to believe the wrong things. And if he were to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, he's conceding the biggest battle, the number one truth of who's in charge, Jesus. And if you know that Jesus is in charge, well, then all of a sudden, everything that they're saying doesn't matter anymore because what Jesus is saying matters. So what he's saying is if there's some spiritual manifestation happening, Figure out whether this thing is saying that it's Jesus is Lord or Jesus be accursed. Okay? Now, side note, that doesn't work with doctrine. And what I mean is, is that, uh, you know, when it comes to other, there's religions, okay? And there are religions that don't have true doctrine. And, but they might say that Jesus is Lord and still have messed up doctrine. Let me explain. There are, uh, uh, there are cults right now, okay? Ones that are very, very common among us. As a matter of fact, we have a presidential nominee who is a part of one of them called Mormonism, okay? And it will just say it like it is. Mormonism believes that Jesus is Lord. But guess what? They believe that Jesus is a Lord and a God among many gods, one of whom is Satan, who's his brother, Lucifer, who's his brother. That is not Christian doctrine, okay? But it starts off by saying Jesus is Lord. You can't gauge Christian, you can't gauge appropriate doctrine just because of whether or not someone says that Jesus is Lord. It's a little more intricate than that when it comes to doctrine. But when it comes to a demon and spiritual manifestation, what Paul's saying is if, if some demonic thing actually manifested, some spiritual thing manifested at a worship service in Corinth, he said, ask it if Jesus is Lord. That's like, you know, find out whether the thing believes that Jesus is Lord. If not, it's not the spirit you're talking about. It's that simple. Because they are serving something else, okay? They're serving something else. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with Parker Ford Church right here, right now? You know? Well, we'll get there, okay? We'll, t we'll talk about it. Um, so the second thing that Paul talks about is this. He says, all right, so if there is spiritual manifestation happening, first thing is just because it's spiritual doesn't mean that it's good. Second thing is if we see spiritual manifestation and it is good, and we've tested it, and it says Jesus is Lord. What is this thing? It says it's the working of the what? The manifestation of the, the Spirit. So 
if this thing is showing up, if all of a sudden there's this spiritual stuff that's happening, then who gets the credit for that spiritual stuff? Who is it? Whose work is it? Come on. Whose work is it? Thank you. God, it's the work of God. When at, on Pentecost, these guys are sitting there praying. They're praying and all of a sudden, tongues of fire show up and they're speaking in languages and they're healing people and everybody hears the gospel and things move forward. Ten minutes ago, could these guys speak in tongues? No. Ten minutes ago, could they heal someone? No. They didn't have any of it until Jesus showed up in the form of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, what made this work? Was it these guys? No, it was Jesus. And so now if all of a sudden Peter was like, did you check me out? I can talk like this and I can do that. It's like, no, you can't. Jesus can. You were here 10 minutes ago and you couldn't do it. But Jesus showed up and now it's happening. Because it's not about Peter and it's not about the church. It's not about anybody else. This is about Jesus. And so when spiritual gifts start to happen, when there's manifestation of things, there's no room for anyone to take credit except for Jesus. And there's no room for credit to go anywhere and no room for any arrogance or anything other than just giving praise to Jesus. And if anything other than that happens, then all of a sudden we're twisted. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. These things were happening and they were like, whoa, did you hear the way that guy gave that word? That was so cool. And Paul's like, Put that on the shelf because it wasn't that guy. It was Jesus. If, in fact, it was claiming that Jesus is Lord. Okay? And so, I mean, like, honestly, to, to claim any sort of credit would be like someone, you know, bragging about the fact that they're rich when they won the lottery. You know? Like, you didn't do anything to earn it. Like, you got the lottery. Like, what makes you special? Because you got the lottery. I, you didn't do anything. You know? Or, like, here's another thing. If, if I was, like, you know, talking about something special... If my boys, my two boys, I use my boys for illustrations all the time. Someday they're going to look back and they're going to listen to my message. No, they're not. What do I, I, don't, I don't have anything to worry about. So um, if, my, if my two boys, if one of them says to the other one, hey, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> well, that's actually kind of true. I can't kind of beat myself up over stuff sometimes. But like, you know, it wouldn't make any sense if, if Colton and Evan said, my dad can beat up your dad to each other. And in the same way, if I say my spiritual gift is better than yours, what? Like, this is Jesus working right now. All I'm doing is revealing Jesus. And if I think that my spiritual gift is more important than yours, it's Jesus doing it. It doesn't make any sense. This is all from God. It's called a gift, you know? It's not mine. I don't own it. I didn't do anything to earn it. This is him. So whatever one person's doing in the church versus what another person's doing in the church, there's no, like, levels here. It's all Jesus. That's all there is, right? It's just Jesus. That's all there is. Okay, so that's his second point. His, his first point is not everything that shimmers is gold, not everything that's spiritual is good, and you need to, to test it. Secondly, is that anytime there is anything spiritually good that's taking place, it's all Jesus, and he gets all the credit, and no one else is allowed any credit. Which kind of leads to the third thing, which is that, okay, it's cool that there are spiritual gifts, but you've got to understand, there's not just one spiritual gift. Like, they were all about this one, and you'll see it in chapter 14. It's speaking in tongues. They were all about... Go figure, speaking in tongues was a controversial issue back then. Still is, all the time. So, you know, uh, in, in uh, chapter 14, he really gets into that. And we'll deal with what he does with that in chapter 14. But right here and right now, he's like, there's more than one spiritual gift. And he goes and he outlines a whole bunch of spiritual gifts. Now, you do notice that this list of spiritual gifts, and here's a, a little window into some of the spiritual gifts Sunday school class. This, this list of spiritual gifts have you noticed that everything in that list is really spiritual, you know? You know, it, it, there's nothing here about serving, about helping, 
about doing things like that. They're all like supernatural in this list in, Rome, in uh, Corinthians, which is different than the list in Romans, which is also different than the list in Ephesians. And the contexts are very different. So you learn different things about them. And you learn how different kinds of gifts are for different kinds of things. And so you learn more about that in the Sunday school class. But what's going on here is that he's saying Paul's third kind of nugget of wisdom is that when the Holy Spirit manifests and when he gives spiritual gifts, he doesn't just do it in one form. There's all sorts of ways that he works. And what's more is Ephesians tells us, I love this picture in Ephesians where it says he spreads his gifts among men. It's almost like uh, somebody standing at the top of some skyscraper with a whole bundle of money, right? And they take the money and they just throw it out into the wind, you know? And everyone down there in the streets below, there's money coming down and it's raining money and everyone gets a little bit of the treasure, you know? And this is the way God is with his gifts. He, behind, as, as Jesus ascends into heaven and he leaves his spirit to come and be with us, it's like he spreads his spirit out among us. And the work of his spirit is spread out among the church. It's not like you possess the wholeness of God inside of you alone. That's Jesus. That's what he was in the flesh. But we each possess among us the Holy Spirit dwells and he he works in this way in you and in this way in me. And what Paul's trying to say is, is like, all right, we celebrate the fact that we're each unique. In other words, we don't want to be a carbon copy. It's not like everyone should want this gift. We need all the gifts. And we shouldn't say like this one is super special compared to this one. The whole point is the fullness of God is in the diversity. So we celebrate the fact that we're diverse in our spiritual gifts and we're unified with them, hopefully, but we're certainly not uniform in them. You know what I mean? And so that's what he's calling them toward. I mean, one of the things that's always annoying in in, uh, professional sports is if you see a professional athlete who like all they want to do is like be the best player on their team instead of playing with their team to actually be better than the other team. They don't really care about that. Have you ever seen that, (laughs) T.O.? Like when that kind of happens, you know? Sorry. He did come and play in Philly, so it gave gave rights to just say a little something. Um, But it's a really frustrating thing, and it happens in the church sometimes where it's all about being, you know, the special one at the church instead of, like, engaging with the church to actually do something in the world that the kingdom, you know, is supposed to happen. Instead, it's like, is this spiritual gift just my ticket to being something special in the church? Or is this, like, part of what the Spirit's using to make us effective at doing what it is that he's called us to? And we each need to know our part and appreciate the rest of the parts as well. So that's the third thing. First thing is that not everything that's spiritual is good. Second thing is that everything that is of God is of God, and therefore we, don't, we can't take credit of it. It's the work of God. Third is that he spreads himself among all of us, and we have to celebrate the diversity and appreciate it and work together. And the fourth thing is this, is that God does this however he desires. God spreads his gifts among men and women however it is that he desires. If you look at verse 11, this is how it ends. This is how this, uh, this portion ends. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Again, picture Adam and God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. And then picture Pentecost and God breathing into the church the Holy Spirit. It's wind. Holy Spirit, pneuma is the Greek word, which means wind. Breath, air, it blows. You can't just tell it where to go. 
And so often when it comes to spiritual gifts, what you find is, is that the church wants to control spiritual gifts. And we want to use the spiritual gifts the way we want in order to do things that we want to accomplish and we want to be able to use them the way we want to. And that's been a historical problem with spiritual gifts. Sometimes spiritual gifts can be the most divisive thing in a church. And, and, and it's, it's funny how the, the whole point of him spreading the gifts among us was so that we could have unity. Spiritual gifts are supposed to lead to us being unified. God designed it to bring unity to us. And, and that will happen in the rest of the chapter, uh, in chapter 12 when we get back to it. We'll hear more about that. But what often happens is just the opposite. We try to control the gifts and define the gifts and all of that stuff instead of letting God be in charge. We want to have control over them. And this is kind of like, you know, someone who works, uh, imagine someone who works for a company that Warren Buffett owns, okay? Warren Buffett owns the company and you, and you want Warren Buffett to come and help you out because this is his company and even though he owns like a million of them, like this is one of them. So you want him to come and help you do your budget for your department and pay your bills, you know? Like, that's a little bit of a stretch to have him do that for me. But maybe if we're having enough of a struggle, and this is important enough, he's actually going to come all the way down deep into this company and do a deep dive because he wants returns on his assets, right? And so he might actually come all the way down to that level of dealing with the company to help me out. And when he gets there, if I tell him, no, that's not what we need, this is what we need. To Warren Buffett, when he owns my company, it doesn't make any sense. And yet oftentimes that's how we deal with God when it comes to spiritual gifts. Like that there's this sense of like, this is what, I, this is what I'm doing with my life, God. I'm over here doing my thing. And I also need to accomplish this thing you told me to. So can you hook me up? Can you come here and do this thing for me and make this easy for me so I can get back to doing what it is that I do? Which is absurd. See, the way it works when it comes to spiritual gifts is that he has called us as a church to these works that he has preordained that we should do. And when we understand that he's king, when he's the owner of the business, when he's dad, when he's the one in charge, and when we submit ourselves to him and we make our lives all about what it is that he wants us to be about, then we realize we don't actually have what it takes to accomplish this on our own. I am given entirely over to him, but now I'm saying I can't actually, your investment that you've invested into me, I can't actually return the yields that I need to return for you, for your kingdom, on my own. I need your help. Hence, the fruit of the Spirit. Hence, the gifts of the Spirit to accomplish what it is that He's called us to do. You see, God has not called us to be a good business as a church. God has not called us to be a slick organization that knows how to get stuff done by being really effective managers. Now, granted, leadership is one of the gifts that He gives us. And we need to lean into that, you know? But we are not primarily a human organization as a church. We are the divine church of God. His spirit dwells in us. We are the body of Christ. And if all we produce at the end of our time is something that can be traced back to the work of men, then we have failed because God has not received glory. Men receive glory because everyone else watching can say that was the work of men and not the work of God. And we haven't fulfilled the purposes of God. You see, he calls us to things that are far bigger than we can actually accomplish. And we're to be a part of that and we're to engage in that. But until I get my life to the place where I'm submitted to him and submitted to his purposes, then to ask him to come and do his best work would be absurd because then he's just empowering my life which will lead to my own glory instead of empowering his purposes which lead to his glory. 
So my job is to be in submission to God, to be all about His purposes, to be surrendered to Him, to be a team player, to invest into each other, to be about knowing God and about seeing His work done. And then when I say, God, we don't have what it takes to accomplish this. We can't do it. And He's like, awesome. Do what they did at Pentecost. Get in the room and pray and seek my face and I'm about to show up and help you guys out in any way that you need in the moment, okay? Hence, spiritual gifts. And that's where we see spiritual gifts. And we see them happen and we see them manifest and we see stuff take place and that's God willing to help. Now, oftentimes, you may wonder, how come I've never seen all that stuff, a lot of that stuff that they had in Corinth? Like, that's kind of interesting. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. I don't know, you know. But you might ask that question. And that's a really good question. It's a very honest question. It's good to actually ask that question. And there's, there's a bunch of different ways to deal with that and to answer that. But here's a couple, okay. I'm not going to get into all the details of each of these gifts. But we want to talk about this at large a little bit right now for a second. And that's this. There is, um, there is a doctrine called cessationalism. Do you know what sensationalism? That's very different than sensationalism. Sensationalism is when you want to sense things and feel things all the time, you know? Sensationalism. Cessationalism means that we believe that certain things ceased. They stopped. And there's a doctrine that says that these gifts that are in Corinthians, these spiritual gifts, that many of them actually stopped and they no longer exist, that God doesn't use those things in the church. And that someday it will come back again when he pours out his spirit uh, on all mankind, you know, uh, and, and that's that doctrine of cessationalism, which is pretty much, pretty much based on a systematic theology, um, which is a systematic theology. Bear with me for a second, okay? Um, this is important. Uh, a systematic theology is a system by which we interpret the scripture. So if I have a basic theology by which everything I read in the scripture, I put in this paradigm that I have. That's a systematic theology. In general, I don't believe in systematic theologies because uh, systematic theologies tend to be things that we invent then that we're supposed to interpret the scripture through when the scripture is actually a story of God. And you just read it. Just read it, you know? Like let it be a story, not just not first a doctrine, a book of doctrine, not first a list of rules, but a story of God and his people, you know? And I don't have to interpret the story through this grid or that grid, you know, but systematic theology is this thing about like, all right, here's the system by which I interpret everything. And lots of times we form the system to help things make sense to us that we have a hard time understanding in the scripture. And so we form systems by, that, that make things fit a little bit easier in our categories, you know, but the problem is, is systematic theologies always have big gaping holes in them, you know, they never quite take care of all the questions, uh, and, and if we, if all of our, if we have a systematic theology and say everything is like this, well then anybody can shoot in that. So here's, here's how this works. Dispensationalism is a systematic theology. Dispensationalism means that there are periods of time. We're getting a deep theological dive here for a minute. It means that there are these periods of time throughout how God works in the church. You know, there's, he worked this way for a while with the Old Testament and he was kind of this way. And then you get over here and in the New Testament church, you see him work this way. And then kind of after that, the church changes and God works this way. And there's these time frames. And God uh, chooses to limit himself or change how he works in different periods of time throughout history. Here's the problem. The, the problem is that as far as I read the scripture, that God is not defined by blocks of time. That God is not best understood through blocks of time. 
The way that God is best understood is through relationship. That's what the whole thing is about. God is a, a person, an individual, and, he, and it's a story of him and his people. And if we want to understand why God seems to interface with people a certain way here, and, and, but then over in this country, he's kind of doing it different, and in this time, he's acting this way, and in this time, he's acting that way, well, look at our own relationships. Look at my relationship with my kids. One day, I might be able to give them all sorts of gifts, and I might be able to, to buy them stuff and celebrate, and, and it'd be really good. Another day, if I do the same thing, I might be spoiling them. Because I have to understand where they're at right now and what they need to learn right now. And they might be at a spot where the last thing they need is for me to reinforce their behavior. So I'm not going to give them good gifts right now to reinforce their behavior. But over here, when they're really in need of knowing that they're loved and cared about and that they need help, well, then I might give them a lot. Just shower them. And even though they feel guilt and shame about whatever, I'm just going to shower them with blessings today because more important for they're beating themselves up enough. What they need is the support of their parents. So I'm going to deal with them a certain way. And this is the way God deals with his people all across the pages of Scripture. It's not the rhyme or reason based on blocks of time throughout history. It's that God loves his kids, you know? And he finds ways to deal with his kids appropriately in this culture, in this time, in this context. And so to say, like, God used these gifts at this time and he will never use them again until this time here because, you know, my theology says so is something that that's pretty limiting to how God works. And so the doctrine of cessationalism, which says that these gifts no longer exist, is something that, that oftentimes is invented because either we don't see this stuff happening and we don't know what to do with that, or we're afraid of it happening, so we define that it's not there, or we're trying to make sense of why I haven't experienced all of it. So, but when you look at the scripture and you try to find a doctrine of cessationalism where these gifts no longer exist in the scripture, good luck. Good luck trying to find that theory in the scripture. It's just not there. You know, the scriptures never say that God stopped moving this way or that he wanted to stop moving this way or he was going to stop moving this way. It never happens. And so when you read the scripture and you just read about spiritual gifts and you read about God manifesting and you read about the power of God happening and then we don't see it happening now, it's, it's easy to want to create some theology that says that, that stuff stopped. But maybe I should be asking another question, which is like, huh, I wonder why God wouldn't be doing that the same way right now that he did back then. Or maybe, huh, he actually, it could be that either he is and I'm not seeing it, or it could be that he's not for some reason that maybe I need to figure out, you know, or maybe a combination of those things. And when I think about the church in America and how oftentimes the gifts have become a very controversial issue, extremely, I mean, the last generation of church, when it came to the charismatic movement, I mean, it, there's just church after church after church after church was divided through the movement of Pentecostalism. And now, lots of times when it comes to things of the spirit, if you see anything spirit, there's a real stigma for a lot of people. And it's like a, a big reaction as if, you know, you know how Paul had to tell them not everything that's spiritual is good. Sometimes you have to say the opposite now. Hey, by the way, not everything that's spiritual is bad. You know, like there's some things that are spiritual that are really, really good. As a matter of fact, the spirit of God moves and is alive and is active. And it's incredible to see God move and he moves in our lives. And we're not just some cold, leftover, generationally uh, ravished church who kind of holds on to the memory of some legacy where God used to be present. Like his spirit's alive and well and is with us and is willing to help us and be a part of things. But I got to open up my mind to a few possibilities. And just personally, when I think about it, there's a couple of things that I really think of when it comes to America that keep us from experiencing at times and understanding all of what God's doing spiritually. One is that we tend to not be very God-dependent. 
We're an extremely independent people, an extremely self-reliant people. And so why would God give more reinforcement and more power to our independent lives? You know, if while I'm sitting over here, I got it, God, I'm taking care of my life. And he was like, cool, let me give you a whole bunch of power to help you do that better. You know, no, America has all the power in the world, humanly speaking. So why do we need the spiritual power of God to back up what it is that we're doing? You know, when a church gets broken before God and gets dependent on God and says, God, you know, what I'm realizing is, is the work that you really want me to do is the very thing that I can't do. I can manage this and I can make our church look appealing this way or I can kind of grow our church to make it look like there's some vitality and I can do this and I can pull these tricks, you know, and, and, and all of that. But at the end of it, it's still human. But if I say, God, I'm supposed to be able to love sacrificially in a way that blows the minds of people around us. I'm supposed to be able to step in in a way that reveals your glory in a world that completely doesn't understand your glory. And I'm realizing that I want to give my life to those purposes and yet I fail miserably at being able to make it happen. I can't do it. What's the picture of an independent church versus a dependent church? The picture of an independent church is is we find solutions to our problems. The picture of a dependent church is we get like they did at Pentecost on our faces before God and say, we need you to show up because this is your work, not ours. And the church of America in general is not a praying church because we're not a dependent church, which is one of the reasons why we probably don't see as much of the power of God being manifested as it does, frankly, in other parts of the world right now. And if we believe in cessationalism, but we took a trip to the persecuted church in China, all of a sudden we would find out, holy cow, I don't believe in cessationalism anymore. You know? Because we realize that in other places in the world, the Spirit of God breaks out in powerful ways. There's reasons why we don't experience the fullness of it. There's another reason that I can think of, and that's that in our independence we have become very segregated. And what happens here in in, uh, Corinth is that in this local body, they had one person who speaks in tongues, right? And they were speaking in tongues and they're like, wow, that guy's a hot shot. He can speak in tongues, you know, or she is, you know. And, and over here, it's like, well, you know, I can't really do that. I, I do get some wisdom here and there in some direction, but that's not as cool as that. And there was this division, right? And they could start to define themselves based on their spiritual gifts and what they had uh, uh, different from each other instead of defining themselves based on the spirit of God who bound them all together. Now, Have we ever thought about the possibility that maybe that's true not just of individuals, but it's also true of local bodies? You know how when you get to Revelation and Jesus writes to the church, writes to the churches, John writes to the churches through the Spirit prompting him, and he writes to seven different churches, and how are they named? What's the name of the church? The church of a town, a city. Yeah, wherever they live. It's regional. Okay, so the church of Philadelphia, the church of Laodicea, the, you know, and they're, they're named by, what if it was, what if there was a letter that was written to the church of the greater Pottstown area? Do you realize that if each Sunday we passed it around and went to read that thing in each church, that it would take us years to read that letter? Because that's how many churches there are in the Pottstown area, you know? which I don't have a problem with. As a matter of fact, we could decentralize even more and go into house churches, and I'd be just cool with that too. You know, it's great that we have that many people who are attending the church. But the thing is, is that we don't actually act like we're one church in one city, do we? 
As a matter of fact, we define ourselves. Who am I in the kingdom of God is defined against who they are and who they are and what they believe and how they look. They're the ones who jump pews and do crazy stuff in their church. They're the ones over there who study theology. They're the ones over there who are really stiff. We're the ones who, you know, do this or do that. And we define ourselves in the Christian world by what we do differently than everyone else does, which is exactly what they were doing in the church in Corinth in the local body when they're saying, I'm the one who speaks in tongues and I'm the one who does this and I'm the one who does that. And if we anticipate that we're going to actually experience the fullness of God's spiritual gifts, then we have to understand we're a part of a broader body. And it's no wonder that all the people who experience this kind of thing go to this church. And all the people who experience and like this kind of thing, they go to that church. And it's almost like, wow, everyone with that spiritual gift just showed up at that church. And everyone with this spiritual gift just showed up at that church. No wonder we're not experiencing the fullness of the gifts. Because we're at the, we're at the uh, Shady Maple Smorgasbord of churches and everyone who likes the bacon's hanging out over there and everyone who likes the pancakes is hanging out over there and the bacon people are like, where are all the pancakes, man? You know, and this is what happens in the church in America. We've learned to market our spiritual gift and define our churches by our spiritual gift and all of a sudden we're like, holy cow, we're missing a whole part of the church because we don't play team ball. Understand? We don't get God dependent so he doesn't pour it all out and we don't play team ball. So even if they're, we have a great running back over here, but see this, and we have a great quarterback over here, but unless they're playing together, it doesn't really matter. And this is what Jesus says in Ephesians chapter four, what Paul says, and another window into what will be happening in the spiritual gifts class is he says this, each one of us is members of the body that is being built up to become under Christ and it's joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Ligament. We talk about spiritual gifts all the time in church. How often do we talk about ligaments? You ever talk, heard us teaching on the, the ligaments of the body? We don't hear much about that. But the funny thing is, man, it's like I can have a great elbow and I can have a great neck, but if I don't have a good ligament, you know, it doesn't work. You know, and the thing is, is like, it may be that God has spread his gifts out all across the church in America, but we just don't have the ligaments to connect us. And we've learned to define ourselves against those other spiritual gifts instead of learning how to embrace them and play team ball with them, which is a huge part of, I believe, God's call at Parker Ford Church is, and this is why we've released Josh, you know, half of his time he goes and prays over Pottstown. Why? Because we believe that a huge part of what happens in this church isn't going to be found at Parker Ford Church. It's going to be found in other churches in the area. This is why we do Netzer, where we connect with other leaders in the area. Because, frankly, the leadership of this church isn't enough to help each of us do what it is that we've been called to do. We need other gifts that are available that aren't actually in our church right now, you know, and, but are in the church, you know, and we need to access them. And we need to learn to play ball together in order for that to work. Okay, so uh, that's all kind of part of the bigger picture of the spiritual gifts thing. But when it comes to exactly what it is that Paul's talking to the church in Corinth about, this is what it is that he's saying. He's saying, you need help, okay? We all know that as a church you need help. You can't do the work of God on your own. It wouldn't be the work of God. It would be the work of men. You need God to be here, so you need a little help. We get that. But when the help starts coming, you have to deal with it appropriately. Okay? You can't take credit for it because it all comes from God. You can't just say hook, line, and sinker that anything that's spiritual is good. You're going to get yourself in some bad shape. You need to have some checks and balances in this thing. 
Three, you need to understand that it's not all about you, that everybody gets a piece of the pie and you have to learn to work together. And fourth, God's going to do this however God wants to and we don't get to tell him. So don't seek the gifts, seek the giver. Seek God, okay? And when we seek God and we seek his purposes for our life and we learn that we're in this together, it creates fertile ground for God to breathe his fresh life. And I don't know about you, but the idea of God breathing fresh life into the church is a really exciting thought, you know? That's something that it's like our, our world needs it. Our world needs a church that is all about being able to reveal God to them, not to reveal some special thing to them, not to reveal pyrotechnics to them, not to reveal good, uh, reveal good marketing to them, not to reveal, you know, but, but to reveal the power of the living God that is made manifest in people being able to truly love one another. You know? Imagine if we, if, like, it all comes down to that, right? That at the end, that we can see the power of people not only being able to love one another deeply and sacrificially, but when one of them's hurting, they can actually even watch the Spirit of God take care of the other person. And the power of prayer actually begins to take massive effect and do things. And it's available. Corinth had it in spades. They just were having a hard time dealing with it appropriately. And they were a total mess, you know? And, uh, and, and, and we, you know, uh, sometimes aren't a mess enough. Like, we, we're not, not, not admitting that we're a mess enough. Sometimes it's just, you know, we need to get a little more dependent and a little less self-reliant. But uh, I'm really looking forward to where God takes us in this Sunday school class. And we will go through, this is a, there's a window in, in verses 4 to 6. Um, in verses 4 to 6 here is a window. This is, I, I'll end with saying this, okay. There's, there's, who's the author of this letter to Corinth? Paul. Okay, that's one. Who was the other? Somebody answered something else. God. Okay, so there's two authors, right? There's Paul and there's God. Paul under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what we find in Scripture all the time is there's this thing, to go back to our theological lesson today, there's this thing called authorial intent. And authorial intent has to do with don't, write, don't put words on the author, okay? Don't take out of this what the author wasn't trying to say. Okay, we've got to think about the authorial intent. What was the author intending to say? And what we've been trying to do with Corinth is completely remove ourselves from our theological paradigms and just eavesdrop between an apostle talking to a church. And what are they saying? And what was going on there? And how can we learn from that? What principles apply to our lives? That's about the authorial intent of the apostle Paul in writing a letter to Corinth. But there's another author, and that's the Holy Spirit. And every now and then, you realize that there was an authorial intent that Paul knew nothing about that he had no idea what he was writing. This happens in the Old Testament all the time, doesn't it? Remember King David when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My bones are out of joint, you know, and they cast lots for my clothing. Hello. That was obviously about Jesus on the cross. But it's not like David knew, you know, it's not like he was aware of what all was going to happen with Jesus. He was speaking personally, but God prophetically is doing something through him. It's the same thing when Isaiah, very clearly in context, is talking about someone being born of a virgin, you know? And then you find out what that really means later on. It wasn't that Isaiah knew that that was about Jesus. He was speaking to a situation about some king and stuff, you know, like, but... Later on, you realize the Holy Spirit's also the author here. And when you look at this spiritual gifts thing, it's unbelievable in those, four, in those three verses, in 4, 5, and 6, when it says different kinds of gifts, but there's the same Spirit. 
There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And there are different kinds of working, but the same God. Those three verses right there are a window into when you look at the other passages that Paul talks about in spiritual gifts. If you come to the spiritual gifts class, it'll blow your mind. Honestly, it'll be one of those moments where you're like, oh my goodness, like Holy Spirit is definitely the author of this book. You know, that, uh, that when it comes to it, Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, but Jesus wrote the whole thing. And sometimes you see the way it ties together in ways that the authors could never know. You know, and it's really cool. So anyway, um, when it comes to what it is that God wants to do here at Parker Ford Church, I hope and pray that God wants to uh, release his spirit in special ways to the church of greater Pottstown, to the church of southeastern Pennsylvania, and that we get to be a part of it. I hope that God doesn't do entirely everything he wants to do here at Parker Ford Church, and I'm not worried about it because he won't. You know, uh, I hope that he, he does a portion of it and that we get to be a part of that in the broader community of what it is that God's doing. And I hope that each one of us is able to discover more and more what our role personally is playing in, in the broader part of what it is that he's doing here at Parker Ford Church. And as he does that, we'll thank him and praise him, but we'll remember that none of this is for our own spiritual legitimacy or sense of significance, that our significance and our legitimacy is found in one place. It's the cross of Christ and our redemption. And that when he does this stuff, this is just his gift to let us play ball with it, you know, which is really fun. And so we thank God all the time for the gifts for allowing us to be a part of his redemption. And uh, we recognize that not everything that, that shimmers is gold. And when it does come, it's all him, so we give him praise for it. Let's pray.